Ephesians chapter 2, without any further ado, verse 11, Paul beginning a new thought here. It's, of course, connected. It's a collective letter that he wrote, but he's introducing us to a new thought here and, and bringing some further clarity to this great separation between God and man. And so far, we've studied much on the doctrine of salvation. We've studied much on our position in heaven. We've studied much on our value in Christ, right? That we are his workmanship. We've talked about God's economy. We've talked about his perfect plan within his economy of the heavenly places, his perfect plan for redemption, and how Jesus came to fulfill that beautiful work of redemption to make us his handiwork, his masterpiece, his workmanship. And so now continuing on from there, verse 11, therefore remember, remember, what we, go, when we see therefore, we know that we ask the question, what is it therefore? We've heard it, right? I've heard it since I could remember, and uh, I'm sure you have as well. But we ask the question, therefore, so what is it? Therefore, we back up to the previous verse, because, or the, the several verses here, but because we are his workmanship, because we have been saved by grace through faith, and that is the work that he is doing and he has done, and because we are his workmanship, this beautiful, glorious work of art, poema, his workmanship, because of that, let us remember let us not forget the work that God is doing. Let us not forget that we are his poema. Let us not forget that we are his glorious work of art. Let us not forget our value in Christ. Let us not forget our purpose created for good works to bring glory to God. And remember, so as he says, remember that, and he's saying now remember this, that you once Gentiles in the flesh, this is who you were, so you remember his workmanship. And you're, as we remember his workmanship, we are remembering his power. The work that God has done is an incredible demonstration of his power, his might, his grace. Remember, we talked about within God's economy, his grace is a total embarrassment of riches. Remember his riches, the riches of his grace. Remember all the things that he has done and Here's even more that he has done. Remember that not only are you his workmanship, but you were Gentiles in the flesh, according to the flesh, called uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. Now, you know, it, it, the translation here is to give us a picture, almost to put quotes around the word circum, uncircumcision and the circumcision. These are labels of people. Gentiles, the uncircumcision, the uncircumcised, the Jews, the circumcision, those who are part of the circumcision. And this is all according to the flesh. This is a label of the flesh. But what he's speaking of here is a major separation, a social issue, a massive social issue between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jews hated the Gentiles. 
They, they had a, a perspective of Jews. They thought that the Jews were fuel for the fire of hell. That's what the, I'm sorry, did I say the other way? They thought that the Gentiles, the Jews thought that the Gentiles were fuel for the fire of hell. That was their purpose in life. The Jews would wake up each day and pray, thank God I'm not a Gentile. That's how much they hated them. Looked at them as not even second class, but lower than that, as dogs of society. Previously, they, the Jews, were the standard of religion in the church. And they had put themselves in this place of a standard of religion. However, now, the church of Ephesus was primarily made up of Gentiles. And so as Paul is addressing the Gentiles, and he's, while he's addressing them, he's addressing this major rift between people groups not so different than the world we live in today. Paul is addressing major problems, major issues, and major differences between people groups, social injustice, if you may. It's an amazing thought that Gentiles could be part of the church alongside of the Jews. And only God's workmanship could do such a thing. And so that's why we remember that word, workmanship, of what God has done. God, and we talked about last week, we are remade in Christ, being remade into the image of Christ that he created from the beginning, right? And so we are being remade into that image. Not only that, as he addresses the sin problem and recreating us, that Christ is being formed in us further, he actually brings unity among people groups. And we're going to get into further on how he does that, but we're still addressing the problem. The major issue between the Gentiles and the Jews that is identified clearly and amazing how God's workmanship could do such a thing in bringing them together. That is a glorious work of art. When God brings people together, that is a beautiful work of art. I said it last week. Look around the room. This is a beautiful work of art that God would bring together so many people to worship him in unity together. What are we unified under it's the blood of Jesus, isn't it? We're going to get further into that today. Anytime that there's unity between people, it's all about Jesus. It all points us back to him. And it's all that we would remember who we once were. No better than anybody else. No better than another people group a glorious work of art as a people. Unity of people is a glorious work of art. It's, you think of it within marriage. I've said it before many times, but only the glorious workmanship of God could bring two totally different, totally independent, totally sinful people and make them one. 
Only God can do that. And we're reminded of that, right? Within our, maybe our marriages, with our children, in our home, within the body of Christ. We need to be reminded of that. Pressing into Jesus is going to bring us together even in a greater way. The great power of great workmanship is demonstrated. The same power that raised Christ from the grave. There's already the sin problem that we established, but now there's a social problem. The problem is that within a social problem, we'll often blame economy, won't we? Right? There's economic injustice, and so we blame that the social issue on the economic injustice. But remember, Ephesians chapter one, we talked all about God's economy and the work that he does and the embarrassment of his riches. We're not talking about our economy. We're not talking about our social ways or our social injustice because it's actually all been settled. There were many problems stacked, so to speak, against the Gentiles, separated from God by sin, separated from God by social practices. The reality is that the Gentiles were a very desperate group of people, and that's where we relate. You see, most of us are Gentiles, right? Maybe some of you by heritage are not, but for the most part, we're Gentiles, But somehow, here we are together, the body of Christ. It's through the blood of Jesus. The reality is, as they were a desperate people group, there were so many obstacles between the Gentiles and becoming part of the body of Christ. According to the flesh, though, remember, according to the things of the flesh, the actual physical circumstances that they were living in. But it's all coming back to a recognition of what God has done and tearing down the walls. And Paul says, remember, remember the walls that were up in society. And remember at the same time who we were, completely separated from God in sin. Further, it was important that they would realize the truth about themselves how desperate they were. And it's still the same for us today so that we can fully understand and appreciate God's work and power. You know, so many people see no benefit to salvation or to Christianity. And maybe you're here today, mom asked you to come to church with her or your wife asked you to come to church because she's a mom and it's Mother's Day. And you say, hey, come to church. Or maybe you're a mom that that your kids said, come to church with me on Mother's Day. Maybe you're just visiting for whatever reason. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, I don't actually see the benefit of salvation. I don't see the benefit of Christianity. There's a problem here. The problem is that you don't always realize the truth about yourself. And we don't. 
We struggle to understand, to realize the truth about ourselves, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were completely separated from God, that we are actually, we're actually completely separated apart from Christ. We are completely separated from the community of God, from any sort of fellowship with God. There's a sin problem. There's a separation problem. But we have to realize that. Maybe you're here not seeing the benefit, facing down, and as you're facing down the wrath of God, you're maybe misunderstanding the wrath of God. Apart from Christ, there will be misunderstanding of the wrath of God. I read an article yesterday about the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. You may have heard of this. It's a a replica of Noah's Ark that's been built out in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. And you could go and you can visit, you can tour around. It's a whole complex that's been built. It's an amazing experience. And I, I went there with my family a couple of years ago, and when we went, we were blown away. At times, I was brought to a place of weeping because of just how good God is and the grace that he gives and pours out through, throughout all of history back to the flood, Right? This article that I read yesterday, it was, uh, it was written by a secular scientist, and it claims that the Ark Encounter, as they visited, they wrote an article on it, they claim that the Ark Encounter is a shrine to the wrath of God. That's what it is. And I thought to myself, this is so sad. I was getting angry, and I wanted to like throw my phone out the window, but I was just, I got, I, then I was so grieved to think, man, people do not understand the wrath of God. Therefore, they don't understand the grace of God. And you know what? The world could look at the ark encounter. They could look at the story of the flood. And maybe you look at the story of the flood because maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're thinking, man, God just wiped out the world. And that was totally just judgment. He just poured out wrath. Yes, he did pour out wrath, but he made a way because that's what God has been doing from the beginning of time is making a way for us to have fellowship with him. And that's the word to the Gentiles. You are so separated. You are separated by all accounts, but God made a way. The world easily misunderstands the wrath of God and therefore misunderstands the grace of God. We will never truly realize God's greatness and power unless we realize the greatness of the obstacles that God has overcome. And so we see Paul here speaking of circumcision. Circumcision is the mark of the Jew according to the actual physical flesh. That is the mark of the Jew. And Jews had a problem with thinking that the only thing that, that really mattered was the sign of the flesh. But Paul already addressed that. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. It's not a sign of the flesh that matters. According to the mark of the flesh, the only thing, or the, the Gentiles were labeled by this mark of the flesh. They were labeled by the Jews and 
they labeled themselves. Paul is constantly driving the point home that there is absolutely no confidence in the flesh. He's consistent in his writings, in his letters, to say the same thing in different ways. But there is no confidence in the flesh. According to the flesh, man, the Gentiles, whoo, they just had the deck stacked against them in every single way. Verse 12, when we continue, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No doubt it's God's workmanship that he brings Gentiles into fellowship with the Jews, that he brings them together in one. That's what we've established, right? But here's even more clarity on the depth of what God has done, his workmanship within the body of Christ. And that workmanship, here's a picture of some things of how, how much God has done, how many obstacles he's overcome in his workmanship. Within, without Christ is the first statement. That you were without Christ. First of all, that's the biggest problem that leads to pretty much every other problem in life. Being without Christ is a miserable state. Speaking of not being in fellowship with Christ, Paul is identifying this as the time before Christ came and fulfilled the work of salvation. It is a picture of life before Christ, before relationship with Christ. We call it BC historically, and then we say even to one another, you know, my BC days before Christ. And that's the picture of being before Christ, before Christ came and fulfilled the work of salvation, the Gentiles had so many things against them. There are so many obstacles for them in becoming part of the body of Christ. But did that make a difference? No, because Jesus tore down the walls. Without Christ, here's what they were. They were aliens. What that tells us is that they had no community within the body of Christ. There was no community for them, having no right to specifically to the land of promise. That was for the Jews. And to this day, there's still a battle over the land of promise. And we know that God is going to give that land of promise back to the Jews. But yet people are constantly trying to take matters into their own hands and claim and grab and I want, it's owed to me, I deserve this. Let God do it. He's going to do it. They were aliens having no right, having no community. They were strangers. As it says here, they were strangers from the commonwealth of, or uh, strangers from the covenant of promise. They had no covenant. They knew nothing of God's promises to the Jews. They had no fellowship in that sense. Their heritage was outside of that influence. So they had no community. They had no covenant. Further, Paul makes very clear because of all of this, right? Without Christ, you have no community. You have no covenant. You have no hope. No hope. Without Christ, there is no hope. And he says it, without God, there is no hope without God. 
This is a completely hopeless statement. Apart from Christ, apart from fellowship with Christ, separated from God, separated from the people of God, with no covenant, with no community, this leads to no hope. What do you have? You have nothing. That's what Paul is making very clear. And we studied a few weeks back in the, earlier in chapter two of all the desperation. Man, we were totally dead in our trespasses and sins. So we are nothing. And now we establish that we have nothing. Man, this stinks. But does it? Because what Paul is saying, look, this is the perspective of the flesh. This is in the flesh, in your own strength, according to even your heritage and your people group. By social standards, by the standard of the law, you are hopeless. There's no hope without God. No matter what people group you are. Maybe you're privileged. And in America, let's be honest, we are privileged. But without God, there's still no hope. America is not the hope of the world. Politicians are not the hope of the world. Now, mind you, you might think that's easy to say. But I want to challenge you, church. I've seen much of the church put hope in Donald Trump. And maybe that that rings true in your heart and mind. God's in control. And perhaps God allows things to happen the way they happen so that we would put our hope in him rather than a man. Because what are we desperate for? Jesus and more of Jesus. We're not desperate for social change. We're not desperate to see, you know, by human terms, walls of injustice come down and greater equality. We are desperate for more of Jesus. Peace between nations is not the hope for the world. Strength in economy is not the hope for the world. And here's some things that I, you know, as I studied, looked into some of the things that the world is claiming hope in. A better tomorrow, right? A future, a good future. And here's some of the ways that that might be fulfilled on the world's terms. Eradicated disease, number one on the list. Saving the planet, right up there on the list. You notice that we have no more bags in grocery stores. This is brutal this week. I don't know about you guys. I walk in, I'm gonna get my stuff, like this is great. Oh, no. I'm not paying 35 cents for a bag, so I'm trying to, you know, put it in the shirt or something, trying to walk out the store. It's unbelievable, right? But there's all this hope and this focus that's put into saving the planet. Guys, we have no ability to save the planet. In fact, God is making the world go round. As we speak, he makes every single one of us, he makes our, our lungs breathe. He makes our heart beat. And we think, we're gonna help God out. 
Let me, let me help you out, God. I've got this all figured out. It's going to cost billions, right? We're not going to figure it out. Listen, this is the hope that the world has. Technological advancement. A world without war. How about this one? Space travel, space survival, and sustainability on another planet. This is some of the things that the world would put hope in. A one world economy. Now listen, I didn't make this up, I read it. People would put their hope in Elon Musk. I'm I'm just, I'm relaying information, I'm a messenger right now, right? But this is crazy, right? And then one of the things that, that people said, the, the best thing, the greatest thing we need is acts, more acts of kindness. We don't have the ability within ourselves, according to the flesh, to actually produce good works, do we? We just studied that last week. But Christ in us. So what do we actually need? What is hope? It's not the world, it's not Elon Musk, it's not all of the things that we think are, this is gonna make for a better tomorrow. It's all empty. It's all destined for failure. There is no hope in this world or the things of this world. It is not getting better no matter what people might try to claim. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's going to get worse and worse. But yet we say, oh, it's better than it was. You know what? The standard of morality just keeps moving further and further. And we think it's getting better. In what way? It's not getting better. Further, as it says, there is no hope there, there is, uh, you are, you have no hope and without God in the world. Who is the manifestation of God in the world? Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He actually came into the world. And without, not just saying, hey, God, right? We could we can make claims. I believe in God. I pray to God. But people have a perspective, perhaps, of just God being in heaven, and, and he's separated from us, and he's just, he's up there, and we even misunderstand, like we said before, the wrath of God and the grace of God. But this, Paul identifies it. No, this is God in the world. We're talking about Jesus. He actually came into the world to change the world. Emmanuel, God with us. There is no hope if God did not send his son. And further, without God, without experiencing God, having an encounter with him personally in the midst of this world, without fellowship with God, there is no hope for us as individuals. We could forget about the hope for the world for a moment and just think about our hope. There's no hope for us in our lives without Jesus. I look over here and I see my brother Greg pressing on in faith and in hope for over eight months in the hospital, a testimony of faith. Without Jesus, there's no hope, am I right? 
Whatever you face in life, whatever you have faced, and, and I'm sure many of you in the room would, would say amen without Jesus. Man, I would be hopeless. Perhaps you're saying, without Jesus, I was hopeless. Right now, hear this, without Jesus, I'm sorry to tell you, you are hopeless. But there's good news. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, this tells us that there is hope. Without question, there is hope because of Jesus. It's in Christ. Everything changes in Christ because our eternal perspective is heaven in Christ. The spiritual blessings in the heavenly places within God's economy. We're talking about Ephesians chapter one. That's what we have. It's all in Christ. So therefore we have hope. As everything changes in Christ, First Peter chapter one verse three, Peter writes, he says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." The resurrection of Jesus is our hope. With all the chaos with all the misery, with all the hopelessness, with all the separation from God, with all the separation of the society and the social issues, there is hope in Christ. Paul is giving a sermon here in these three verses. And here's the point that he's driving home. Recognize who you were in the flesh and know that there is hope in Christ. The Gentiles, as he says, the Gentiles who are now part of the body of Christ by the amazing workmanship of God. The poema. The Gentiles who are a part of the body of Christ by the glorious work of art that God has created. They were once far off, separated in every way, but now in Christ have been brought near to God, to the things of God, to fellowship with God, and into the community of God, the body of Christ. And how? He makes it very, very, very clear by the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the sacrificial death of Christ, That's the only way that we can be brought near to God. And listen, that's the only way that we can be brought near to one another. That's the only way for the walls to come down. And Jesus, right before his death, was praying that we would be one. And he knew that through his death, through his blood, he could make us one. The only way to bring us near to God and to one another is through the blood of Jesus. 
because there's a sin problem. It's not a social problem that has not been overcome. And now what do we see? As they were without community, without covenant, where's the covenant? A new covenant in the blood of Jesus. That is the covenant. We, Gentiles, we in Christ now have community, now have that covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ. Without, the, without bloodshed, there is no remission of sin, right? Things don't change without bloodshed. There's no reconciliation. That is the covenant that matters. They are part of the blood covenant of Christ. We are a part of the blood covenant of Christ. Reconciliation with God and of people. And Jesus, by his blood, overcomes all the social issues. We are brought near, saying that we are drawn near. We are welcomed in to his great love, his great grace, by his blood. And that is the only way that we're brought near. But we, we must recognize the problem. Sin and separation and a desperation for reconciliation, that's our problem. But in Christ, we have hope. We have nearness and fellowship by his blood, through his sacrifice. No matter how far you've been, no matter how many obstacles you might think are in the way. Paul says, remember. Remember his workmanship. And remember the obstacles. His workmanship tore down the obstacles, overcomes all the obstacles to bring us near to himself. Because as we've said so many times, God is desiring fellowship with his people. And he gave his son that we might have that fellowship, that we might be near to him. So no matter how far you've been or no matter how far you are in the flesh, confess, recognize the problem of sin, the separation. And remember his power to overcome that he might reconcile you to himself, to bring you near 